Well, we have arrived at that point we have all been waiting for since we started our study of the book of Leviticus, right? Wes did a great job. Um, I know some of you thought we might read all four chapters, but we chose not to. We've arrived at that. We've arrived at those passages that make us cringe. We've arrived at those passages that make us wince and uncomfortable because of the language that's used and and, and how often it's used and, and how long it seems to go on. It's, it's that section that we so often skip. And I would say all of us have wondered at some point in time why these passages were included and how they might benefit us despite the fact that they are a part of what Paul says is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching reproof Correcting and training in righteousness. It too has value. It's a part of scripture. But you and I, and you you would agree with this statement because many of you have told me so. We have already been blessed through our study of this book. And I believe tonight is going to be no different. We're going to be blessed through these passages Because once again, we're going to see that God desires to dwell with and among his people. And we're going to see the lengths to which he is, he was willing to go to make that happen. Our outline is simple. It's in the back of your bulletin, the note taking guide there. There are four points, really four questions that we're going to answer. I thought the best way to, to walk through these chapters tonight, four questions. What are the ritual laws? Why were they given? Why are they no longer binding and what can we learn from them? What are they? Why were they given? Why are they no longer binding and what can they teach us today or what can we learn from them? Um, We've already read several, again, selections from the chapters. I would ask that you would stand one more time as is our custom in the honor of the word of the Lord. We're going to read one verse and then we'll pray together as we begin. Hear now the word of the Lord. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we would ask you that by your spirit that you would allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption that you have graciously uh, of which you've graciously made us a part. And we praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these words from Leviticus. And we would ask that you would help us to understand them. May we leave here appreciating More and more what is presently and forever ours in Christ and therefore more confident in and resting more fully in and trusting more deeply in him and what he has done for us and what he has gifted to us. And I pray these things in him who is our once for all sacrifice and through whom we have been made clean. Amen. You may be seated. So the first question is. What are they? What are these purity laws? And if you'll remember back in 
Leviticus 10 that Aaron preached through a couple weeks ago. And as I mentioned last week, God told Moses that they were responsible for something. He said they were responsible to distinguish between that which was holy and the common, that which was uh, between that which was unclean and the clean. So very simply, these purity laws were put in place so that the priests might be able to do that. And things were divided into three categories. I know it looks like four, but they're actually three categories. The first two are that which is holy and that which is common. But then that which is common was broken down into that which was clean and unclean. So the three categories are holy, clean, and unclean. And as we mentioned last week, holy is that which is given to or dedicated to, touched by, or in the presence of God. Holiness also means... Uh, we, we mentioned uh, these quotes, uh, he, his quintessential nature, uh, it is his intrinsic character. Um, it was, his holiness is that which sets him apart, makes him different, unique, one of a kind. But it also has to do with his wholeness and completeness. Holiness is about wholeness and completeness, both his and ours. Now, what is common is that which is in the normal day to day. It's that area that we would just consider regular. And these ritual laws were to control or to regulate what was in that common and normal area. They were to determine what could remain. That which was clean could remain in the area. That which was unclean either had to be ritually cleansed or removed altogether. Okay, so we've got the holy dedicated to God, separate and apart, holy other, whole and complete. We have the common, which is every day. We have the clean that could be a part of that every day and remain. And we have the unclean, which had to be either cleansed or removed. So, but what were they specifically? Right, and I'm going to take them as a whole and not go into great detail. But in chapter 11, the... The purity laws regulated food and what could be eaten and not eaten and what had to happen to be cleansed if you did eat something you weren't supposed to. Very simple. In chapter 12, we read of laws that regulated childbirth and how to ritually clean someone who had given birth. Chapters 13 and 14, we read of laws that regulated chronic skin diseases, and mildew, um, mold that had affected clothes and homes, and how to ritually clean those that had become unclean. And then finally, in chapter 15, we have laws regarding discharges of bodily fluids and how to ritually clean those when it took place. Now, what I would like to do is that now just give us four points to consider as we think about these laws as a whole. Because they are, they're all pointing to the same thing. First, you'll notice, and you did notice, I'm sure as Wes was reading, the areas governed weren't strictly moral categories. And they weren't ne- sin wasn't necessarily the cause of being unclean. Now, they all pointed to sin. And, and by the way, childbirth is a perfect example of that. Childbirth is not a sin. But it still caused a woman to be unclean. But it did point, all of these things point to 
uncleanness and to the reality of sin that causes a lack of wholeness, a lack of completeness, a lack of perfection. And therefore, that included moral corruption. So that uncleanness pointed to sin. Secondly, you'll notice as we read those things, it's pretty obvious that at some point. Everyone was going to be unclean at one time or another. Being unclean was inevitable. It could not be escaped. But that brings us to the third point. Again, as I mentioned to the children, thanks be to God, there was a prescribed ritual for each of those things to be followed. And therefore, there was hope for those who had become unclean. And then finally, there were degrees of uncleanness. If you go back and read through the chapters, the, the, the other parts of the chapters that we didn't read, you will read that the, the level of uncleanness or the depth of uncleanness or the degree of uncleanness was determined by or measured by the length of time someone had to remain unclean, which could have been a day, it could have been a week, it could have been a couple months, or it might have been an indefinite time period. But again, back to three, always hope. There was always hope to become clean. We say, okay, that's what they are, but why? Why were they given? And the answer goes back to at least an umbrella answer goes back to the verse that I read as we began in chapter 15, verse 31. You shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. We've, we've talked about this from the beginning. God is holy. We are not holy. God's dwelling is holy because he is he dwells there. Anyone. So therefore, anyone who entered into his presence or entered into the tabernacle had to be clean. The two must be separate. That which is unclean cannot come into the presence of that which is holy. And as one commentator put it, he said, the power and the danger lay not with the unclean, but with the holy, because the holy would consume anything unclean that came into its presence. So the tabernacle was not to be defiled. And in order for the tabernacle not to be defiled, anyone who entered had to be clean. Now, that's the umbrella answer. But there are really three other sub points to this when we say, OK, why is this included? There are three of them first. Or I'm sure there are more, but there are three that I would like to point out to you first. Uh, they were given to confront the people of the whole, with the holiness of God and their sin and the separation that that was caused due to their sin. And that's just one point. Uh, the second is they were given to exhibit the grace of God. And third, they were given to stress the need of preparation or for preparation to approach God's presence. I want to take these one at a time briefly and, and help us flesh them out a little bit. First, as I mentioned, holiness involves goodness, uprightness, uniqueness, otherness. It also involves completeness, wholeness, and perfection. And so these laws confronted the Israelites with that reality. But it also confronted them with sin. And I want us to take just a second to look back at creation as we did when we started in Leviticus. I want us to think about creation for just a minute. God created and everything was considered good. Everything was good. Humanity was naked and not ashamed. They were given to one another in marriage that was sealed by sexual intimacy. That was was a sign of of that union of, of two becoming one flesh. 
They were, they were given everything but one fruit to eat. They were given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And if you remember last week at the table, I said one decision changed all of that. One decision changed everything. Much of what had been declared good was now considered unclean. Right? Animals, uh, the, the animals that were off limits, the body fluids and secretions, the diseased skin and organisms growing where they shouldn't at all, all pointed to a lack of wholeness and completeness. That was the purpose. It, it even pointed to a loss of life and death. So think about this. The food laws reminded them that the abundance of food that was once theirs was not there any longer due to sin. And the fact that they could, and and they had freedom and were carefree in in eating what they wanted to, was now restricted. We think about childbirth laws, and, and it reminds them of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And it was a blessing, but it was now a part of the curse. And, and now pain was going to come forth in the midst of joy. The leprosy laws reminded them that the beauty of the human body, that, that beauty that was admired or to be admired and treasured was now marred, tainted, it, shameful, and had to be covered. The discharge laws reminded them that that oneness that was signified through sexual intimacy had been contaminated. And now there was going to be this constant struggle between husbands and wives. And not to mention the fact that the point, of course, was that sex was not to be used in worship as the pagans did. Reminder after reminder after reminder of the consequences of sin. But they also together reminded them of their separation. Remember, the degrees of their uncleanliness would be determined by segregation. They they had to be segregated for a day, for a week, for months, or for an indefinite time. And, And that could have been from not just worship, but their families and even the community as a whole. No one could touch them. No one could be in contact with them. So they were not only separated from them, they were separated and isolated by themselves. Again, reminded over and over and over again. But second, the laws were were, were meant to exhibit God's grace. They exhibit God's grace. They were prescribed rituals to follow. There was a way to become clean. Restoration was possible. There, there was a way of reproach, uh, approach. There was a way to draw near. There was a way to return. But it had to be followed. Uh, many of you have heard me say this in, in other contexts this week. But the mechanisms may have be, been in place, but they needed to be followed. They needed to be carried out. That same commentator I quoted earlier said, A serious consequence could result from becoming unclean only if one failed to take the steps to become ritually pure. After a time, such failure was considered volitional and that person was declaring that he had no desire ever again to enter God's presence and the penalty was the cutoff penalty. 
So God provided by his grace, but it had to be followed. And third, the laws were given to stress the need of preparation for worship. I mean, think about it. Everyone had at some point was unclean, whether they were unclean themselves or had become personally unclean or they came into contact with someone who had become unclean or they came into contact with something that someone who was unclean had come into contact with or whether they came into contact with something that was unclean. I mean, it was it, it was all around them. That uncleanness was inevitable. And so they would never, ever be at a place where they could presume just to walk into the tabernacle, into the presence of the Lord, because they had to stop and ask themselves all of those questions. Am I or am I not? And so the laws created a sense of extreme caution, but they also provided a sense of confidence because then having been ritually cleansed, they could come into the presence of the Lord confidently And that their worship would be acceptable. But why are they not binding? I could ask that and we could count to three and we could all give the answer, right? They're not binding because of Jesus. It's it's Jesus and Him alone. And in regard to these laws, again as a whole, I just two things that I would like for us to think about and and to... And to, and, and to contemplate tonight. And first, God came to dwell among and with his people. I know it's been a repetitive point, but, but we, we need to be reminded of it. And it needs to continually be, be brought before us that God came and dwelt among and with his people. At Mount Sinai, what did he do? He descended upon the tabernacle to live among and with his people. Yet... What was true? He remained more than arm's length away. He was he remained within the veil, right behind the veil in the Holy of Holies and could only be approached by the high priest. And he that high priest was a mediator who God had appointed on behalf of the people. Now, with that in mind, consider John chapter one. Hear these words. From the apostle, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's right hand. He has made him known. The word that's translated dwelt there in verse 14 actually means pitched a tent or dwelt in a tent. In other words, the incarnation, in the incarnation, God the Father sent the Son, Son Tabernacle. The Son is the true Tabernacle. In Jesus, we have the God-man dwelling among and with His people. And we say, why? Why would... Why is why did he do that? Why was it necessary? Why did he come? Secondly, God came to take on and bear our uncleanness 
that we might be cleansed. He came to take on our uncleanness so that we might be cleansed. And I think it's so interesting, and and I hope you're finding this true. When we go back and we read through the New Testament and we read through the Gospels with the language of Leviticus, so much changes. I want want you to hear three passages. One we've already read, but I want to read it again. But two others. I want you to just hear these stories again or hear these narratives again with this language that we already have from Leviticus. First from Mark chapter 7. And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. What's he just done? Set aside the dietary laws that we just read through. Now from Matthew chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will make me clean or if you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Saying, I will. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. See, back in Leviticus, the person with leprosy had to wait until the leprosy was gone. And then he had to come and make those offerings. Point being that only God could heal. What's Jesus just done? I'm God. I just healed. But what? Keep the law. Go and do the offering that you've been commanded to to offer after your healing. And then Mark 5. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians. And he had spent all that she had. And was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So no, no. And she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? I love this. And his disciples said... Basically, how in the world could you know that someone touched you in the midst of this crowd? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. Why? She wasn't to do that. Anything that she would touch or sit on period, would, would have been, it would cause it to be unclean. So she knows what she's doing. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And this is. God 
in the person of Jesus dwelt among the unclean and the diseased and the broken and the hopeless. He remained veiled, but that veil was a veil of flesh. And he could be seen and touched and approached by those who had been kept at more than arm's length. And he came calling. He came calling not for people to be cleansed by following through and fulfilling the law. But he called them to what? Repent. Because it was an internal problem, not an external problem. All of the external problems in Leviticus and as he went about his life and healing those around, all of the physical ailments and the physical issues all pointed to an internal spiritual reality. And he came to deal with that internal spiritual reality. He who was able to heal them physically was more important, able to heal them spiritually, cleanse them spiritually. He could actually perform what the law could only pronounce. Cleansing. You're clean. Paul said that Jesus, it was Jesus who became sin on the behalf of those who would place their faith in him. The good news for us today, brothers and sisters, is that he bore our sin. He bore our uncleanness. He was taken outside of the city. He was taken outside of the camp where he was crucified on our behalf. His blood was shed so that we might be washed by it. Washed whiter than snow. The rituals were repeated over and over and over and over again. Why? Because they did not do what only Christ could do and did do. Hebrews chapter 9, the writer says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by a means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his only blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Once for all, providing for eternal redemption. Should we look to anyone or anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ? So, what do we, what do they teach us today? How how does all this, what do we take away from this? You guys know I love that question. Six things quickly. First, and we've said this, some of these have been every week, and I get it, but that's okay. First, these laws point us to and teach us to take God's holiness seriously. He's a holy God. He is whole, complete, perfect, altogether other, magnificent. And of course, that leads us to the second. The law points us to and teaches us to take our sins seriously. We are not holy. Through the normal day-to-day activity, we sin because sin is internal, a matter of our heart, not external. It's inescapable. So thirdly, these laws point us to and teach us to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to rest in Him 
There is nothing we could ever do to cleanse ourselves enough. There is nothing that we could work or will to do to to put us into a state of holiness. Our only hope is in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, having placed our faith in him, we, past tense, have been fully and completely cleansed. End of statement. He's done it all. He's done it all that we might dwell with him presently and forever. Fourthly, these laws point us to and teach us. Again, we've said it before, but how how we must approach God and how we must we must approach worship seriously. Right. We don't come nonchalantly. We don't come just in any way that we might please. Why? Because we enter in through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter in because he has been our full and final sacrifice. He's cleansed us. He is the reason that we can fellowship. This is his table, not my table, not Christ Church Bentonville's table. This is his table that he's going to invite you to. We need to keep those things in the forefront of our minds. We approach the Father through the Son by the Spirit and in no other way. And fifthly, these laws point us to and teach us to strive for cleanliness and holiness, right? We are to strive to become who we've been declared to be. We've been de- we, we have been cleansed. We've been declared holy. We are to strive to live clean and holy lives. We are to die to our sin and live unto righteousness. It's who we are. His name, Hans and I were talking during the time of prayer. His name is upon us. We are His. And lastly, this is, and this is a new one, but I want us to, to think about this. And we, we're probably, we're going to more than likely over the next few weeks really delve into this a little bit. But this, lastly, these laws point us to and teach us to not fear to reach out to others. We need to admit, I think we all need to admit that sometimes we're afraid of ministering to certain groups because of their uncleanness. And we're afraid of what we might get on us. But brothers and sisters, we need to remember that we were just as unclean. We were just as unclean. We were caught in the filth of our sin. And we may have we may have been involved in more respectable sins. But it's sin nonetheless. And so just as Christ has reached out and ministered to the outcasts and has reached out and ministered to us, we must be willing to go and do the same, even if it's uncomfortable. Because having been cleansed that's irreversible sin is not contagious uncleanliness is not contagious for those of us who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus oh that it might be so let's pray again father would you now by your spirit Use the word that has been preached.